Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Earlier this month, there was a riot at the George W. Hill Correctional Facility in Pennsylvania. We share here an account from Perilous Chronicle. According to the Daily Times, a guard at George W. Hill Correctional Facility reported a full-blown riot at the facility on September 2nd. I've been there almost 20 years and it was the worst experience I've ever seen in my life working at Delaware County Prison, said another guard. It was horrible. It was unsafe. Two entire blocks refused to lock in, the guard stated. In response to prisoners refusing to lock down, guards entered the block in an effort to show willingness to use force. Prisoners responded by covering their faces with ripped bedsheets and wielding shoes against the guards. When it became clear the prisoners were not going to comply, the guards retreated and a CERT team was called in to respond to the uprising. The CERT team was armed with pepperball guns and reportedly shot over 25 prisoners. Prisoners were also hit with batons. In total, the standoff lasted about an hour. The uprising reportedly started on a day when the air conditioning units were not functioning properly in the prison. A statement from a spokesperson for Geo Group, the private company that operates the facility, stated, quote, Staff responded to a small group of disruptive inmates that were repeatedly non-compliant. All policies and procedures were implemented to maintain the safety for the staff and inmates until the issue was resolved, unquote. An interior report of the incident indicated that a call came in at 3 p.m. Monday saying that two pods had refused to lock in. About 20 officers responded and successfully got one of the pods to lock down. The other pod, of approximately 44 inmates, refused orders to lock down. The report indicates the last staff member out of the block dispersed MK9 pepper spray into the area before exiting. Further attempts to communicate with the inmates in the block were unsuccessful. There were still 26 inmates refusing to comply when the CERT team entered and used pepper balls in an effort to regain control of the pod. Guards ordered prisoners to lie down on the ground, but only half complied, according to the report. One guard who accompanied the CERT team said, quote, It just turned into an all-out war. They were not going down without a fight. It was unbelievably scary. It was like something you see out of TV, unquote. September 9th was the anniversary of the 1971 Attica Prison Uprising, as well as the 2016 National Prison Strike. In memory of Attica, this is a speech by Elliot L.D. Barkley, a spokesperson for the prisoners during negotiations, who was killed when the authorities retook the prison. He was days away from release when the uprising occurred, and he threw himself into the movement anyway. We are men! We are not beasts, and we do not intend to be driven or beaten as such. The entire prison populace has set forth to change forever the ruthless brutalization and disregard for the lives of the prisoners here and throughout the United States. What has happened here but the sound before the fury of those who are oppressed? Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, a network of imprisoned organizers and advocates, has called for a mobilization today, Friday, September 13th, because it's the 25th anniversary of the infamous 1994 crime bill. The following is a selection from their call to action. Quote, 
Demand number four calls for the repeal of the Crime Bill Truth and Sentencing. The 25th anniversary of the Crime Bill will be September 13, 2019. Presidential candidate Joe Biden largely wrote and shepherded the bill through legislation as the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. President Bill Clinton celebrated and saw it as his highest accomplishment when he signed the 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which greatly accelerated the U.S. pace to become the number one nation on earth in detainment and imprisonment. At no point in human history has this level of imprisonment ever been known. Hillary Rodham Clinton, in her 1996 speech, called us super predators who were beyond rehabilitation and must be brought to heel. The bill initially included $8.7 billion for prison construction for states that enacted the Truth in Sentencing Laws, which required people convicted of violent crimes to serve at least 85% of their sentences. This isn't including the funding for tens of thousands of additional state law enforcement boots on the ground in poor communities across the nation. This single bill created the incentive for dozens of states to build prisons and create laws for longer sentencing. 25 years forward, we can reflect upon this bill and see the damage it's done to black, brown, and poor communities in general. Yes, this bill targeted particular communities of hue and poverty. It was no secret who Joe Biden was mentioning when he argued, it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as youth, it doesn't matter whether or not they are victims of society, the end result is that they are about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask, what made them do this? They must be taken off the street. We all agree on that. He further stated, Unless we do something about the cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them born out of wedlock without parents, without any conscience developing, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. Unquote. As we have all listened to these words at some point, we fought back tears of anger. Decent people know that this nation's history gave up on us and allowed people like Biden to further destroy our families and communities without question. They allowed slavery to continue forward unchecked. The victims of an unfair social system were made the predators, fit to be enslaved for decades. With all this in mind, it should not be a surprise that truth in sentencing was in the national prison strike demands as a fundamental issue to be addressed. On September 13, 2019, we are asking citizens of this nation to take a stand with us to highlight the national prison strike demands. How can you help? Hold a forum, do a noise demo, go to your local jail or prison and let these prison crafts and politicians know that the national prison strike demands are still a part of your focus. Thank you to all that hear our call to action. Let's continue to make the politicians hear the voices in these concrete tombs. Jailhouse lawyers speak. This week, we hear more from last month's Bend the Bars conference, which was held in Lansing, Michigan. In a compelling panel called Fighting Immigrant Detention Centers, organizers with the Little Village Solidarity Network in Chicago explained the process that children go through when they are detained by immigration officials. They clarify some of the misconceptions about the so-called shelters that children are detained in and talk about some of the things that they've discovered while fighting the increasing number of immigrant detention centers. My name is Emily. Uh, I organize with, and it's very important that people understand our neighborhood is called La Villita. Um, so outsiders call Little Village people that live in the community and are under gentrification um, and also the violence of ICE and the police. And we also have a wonderful, huge building that uh, contains many, many sheriffs is um, La Villita. So I organize with um, La Red de Solidaridad, La Red de Solidaridad de La Villita. 
Um, I also organize another group that's called FART, uh, Families in Action and Resistance Together, um, do Narcan trainings and other, other activities throughout Chicago. So thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Rosalinda, and I'm also from um, Chicago in the same kind of network of folks. Been involved in anti-detention struggles for a long time, uh, including um, struggles against past and current detention, new detention center proposals in the Chicago area. So today we're going to focus on migrant child detention, but if you're interested in talking about new detention center proposals um, in Illinois, uh, hit me up on that. Um, that's something else we're involved in. And um, we're looking at how legislation that presumes to ban private detention centers um, in states, states are passing it. Illinois just passed one. How that kind of legislation really doesn't stop states from having private detention centers. But what it does is kind of demobilizes grassroots resistance. So if you're working in a state where this is happening, it'd be great to talk further about that uh, and other aspects related to anti-detention work. I'm Arun. I also work with Caravan Support Network. Since we're going to focus mostly on child detention here, I wanted to also give a shout out that adults in immigrant detention are also in need of sponsors, uh, live and remote translators uh, for documents and like their conversations with lawyers and stuff like that. And if anybody thinks that they have capacity to sponsor anybody or is interested in what that sort of entails, please talk to me. Uh, we can get you uh, connected up with folks that can start that process off. Okay, so what we're going to try to do is focus a little bit on child detention today because we think that it's less well known. And so we want to present um, our both research and organizing around that and hope that it's helpful to kind of put that on your maps as you're sort of uh, engaging with your own work um, and to think through how that may or may not be relevant. I'm going to sort of do more of the background and technical and research part and then the compas are going to talk about kind of our tactics and strategies for actually fighting against these um, networks, these systems and facilities. I don't want to talk about our sources of knowledge or like how we approach knowledge about this. And a lot of that really came, at least in my experience, and I think in all of our experience, came um, from listening to our neighbors and loved ones. So loved ones who had loved ones who were children who were held in these so-called shelters, right? Who would say certain things and who would, um, you know, sort of tell their experience, and their experience didn't match at all with what was the official language and, and discourse about what these um, facilities are. Um, so the first step for us was just listening to people and believing them, believing community members, and then trying to go through congressional records and trying to see in moments of sort of like the sort of spectacle of congressional hearings, you know, like around the where are the children. Uh, crisis and so forth. Every so often there'll be congressional hearings in which the heads of the federal agencies that have jurisdiction over these facilities will testify. And so we go through congressional uh, documents very closely and we try to kind of critically read and unpack what it is they're saying kind of by moving beyond their rhetoric to say like what do these numbers mean and what do they mean when they say shelter, participant, reunification, care, and service, right? And then um, another really important source of knowledge for us, and this, so we're really talking about like insurgent knowledge, right, or resistant knowledge, not, not the sort of uh, dominant culture's idea of knowledge, um, has been that there have been abolitionist compañeras and compañeros who have, after years of being frustrated at not understanding technically what this is and seeing the kind of the media blackout around it, have decided to infiltrate these facilities and become workers inside of them. And in some cases, being able to get more senior case management positions. And in some cases, 
then being able to write their testimonies or share their testimonies. And so we have, at the end of the day, we can share this with you. This, this has been shared, the testimonial of one of the compañeras, Ramona Benitez, which is a very detailed and precise account of the kind of technical way in which these uh, facilities operate, and also a kind of key for unpacking the language, right? Sort of like if, when, if when, when we do hear something about child detention, uh, what do they say and what does that actually mean? And so that's something else to sort of think about maybe in the Q&A about the need, the desperate need sort of for social movements to have compas on the inside who are willing to do that work and able to do that work, which is not easy work. So we can definitely share this testimony um, and see if it's useful. We feel pretty fortunate to have like a body of, of knowledge and I guess sort of collectively created expertise on this. Our sort of way of understanding this is that, and, and we can talk about like the historical origins of the system, how it was put together, uh, where it originates, and it's a very complicated story, but I think one of the key moments, there are two key moments in that historical progression that led us to what's today known as the unaccompanied alien children system. Um, so that's what we're going to focus on today. One of those moments was a, a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit uh, against the federal government and what was at the time INS for conditions in detention facilities that were run directly by federal agencies. That lawsuit was not won. It resulted in a settlement. And that settlement then is a kind of court-mandated kind of uh, agreement. And that is a very long and complicated uh, document. It's, I'm, I don't speak legalese, so it's hard for us to read it. We can sort of look at that to see the, the moment of Flores and its aftermath. The aftermath of Flores is its sort of process of rebranding child detention of kind of going from saying these children are prisoners who are held in detention centers to saying these are participants in a shelter system. So we're going to like relabel what we're doing. They are in there to receive services and they are in there for their own protection. We're also going to change technically the federal agencies that have jurisdiction over the children while they're in these facilities. They're uh, under the jurisdiction technically of um, Health and Human Services and ORR, Office of Refugee and Resettlement. So we wanted to look at the effects of this rebranding and to see what really is happening, right? What's really the reality faced by these children. So the, the arc that we want to kind of describe goes something like this. Children or people who are, present themselves as minors, who cannot prove immigration status, and who are not seen by the authorities as having an adult custodian present, are arrested by immigration authorities, right? That's kind of step one is the kind of uh, apprehension moment. Whether it's the so-called separated children where there's a parent there but the parent is removed and put into detention, right? There are many circumstances by which um, children come to be apprehended by DHS and come to be labeled, which is a sort of a technical term, unaccompanied alien children, right? Being labeled an accompanied alien child then triggers the process the first thing that happens is the prosecution of these children. So the first thing that happens is after their apprehension is they're issued a notice to appear, which is the government's first step in trying to deport you. The notice to appear has the immigration violations that are brought against the child, whether they're three months old or three years old or 13 years old. And also there might be a follow-up court date immediately on the notice to appear, or that might be set uh, at a later date. At, after that point, there is a period of time which Flo the Flores Agreement um, stipulates and which was never respected uh, anyway. And the children are supposed to then be transferred to other facilities run not by DHS proper, but by social service agencies that are contracted out by Health and Human Services, HHS, and ORR. 
And in that transfer, when their bodies are shuttled from one facility to the other, right, they're, they're in armored vehicles with ICE agents and so forth, when they are physically transferred to a UAC uh, so-called shelter, there's also a kind of transition in the, the discourse and in the way that they're named, right? That's when they become going from being prisoners to being participants and going from being detained to being reunified. These are the official terms. So when they're transferred, they are shuttled around the country to over 100 facilities that are run by social service agencies and that are quite secretive because the, the rhetoric goes, this is for the children's protection, right? Uh, they're being uh, threatened with trafficking potentially, and they're being followed by gangs. And so the intervention of the government is supposedly to rescue these children. Um, so one of the things that, that Ramona Benita's testimony elucidates very clearly is that in their experience uh, and what we've been hearing also from other folks, the vast majority of the Central American children that are detained, who are now in the hundreds of thousands since the Obama second administration, the vast majority of them arrive wherever they are, whether they're crossing the border or they're inside the uh, United States, they have phone numbers and contact info of loved ones on them. The ones who are not old enough to speak um, have it written down in little notes or sewn into their clothes and the ones who are old enough to have memorized them um, have them memorized. Uh, many of them are en route to reunifying with uh, loved ones, and others of them definitely have loved ones who are willing to step, step up and sort of receive them. But the priority of the government is not <laughs> to place them. The priority of the government is to transfer them to a UAC so-called shelter where their stories are to be checked out and investigated. So they are not believed. The first step is a kind of disbelief and the assumption of criminality. And then the so-called sponsors, who might be parents or uh, adult siblings, uh, the story of the child has to be checked out against the story of the sponsor. That means the sponsors are required over a period of sometimes many, many months to produce documentation, until very recently to produce biometric information on themselves, extensive documentation on everybody in the household, sometimes their entire social network, their workplace, and so forth, other family members. Of course, the parents and so-called sponsors, the family members are undocumented folks, many of whom are very afraid to have to do this. And so I think the testimony of Ramona describes that sort of the relationship between the social service agency and the families and the extremely coercive nature of this demand of saying, we have your kid, don't worry, they're fine. We can't tell you where they are. But if you cooperate with us, you will get your kid. There are many families that are afraid or unable to provide documents or afraid to even try to sort of enter into this kind of investigation. And so there are other people who step up as being sponsors, and many of those cases fail. There is a, a sort of a contradiction there, right, where the families oftentimes understand they might have other children as well, understand uh, that they're putting themselves and their entire families at risk by giving up their biometrics. And yet, the social service agency demands it from them. And there's also been, for the last 25 years, this promise that this information isn't shared with the federal government, which uh, workers inside in the last year have um, leaked evidence that it is. And all the folks we talk to in the community have already always known that that's the case. So the information that's gathered is shared through a portal that is directly uh, linked with, with ICE and with a DHS federal agents. So this is the investigation that's carried out on the families while the children are being detained. There is a lot of extra coercive extracting of information from the children that happens. So children have to speak, have to be interviewed repeatedly by staff. 
the so-called, there's, there's a job position called family reunification specialist, the FR guy. The FR guy is the main investigator. You don't need a family reunification specialist if you don't get detained and locked up and investigated, right? They could just go to their families. Um, so the so-called FR guy um, is the person who, who asks the child for their story. And the child has to give a total stranger who has total control over their lives their story in as much detail as possible. When and if trauma is encountered, then a clinician is called in. So then the child has to be interviewed by a clinician at least once. And the child has to recount experiences of trauma from home country and from transit to a perfect stranger who usually doesn't speak their language and who is not invested in their long-term health care or in their lives in any way whatsoever, right? Because these caseworkers are just assembling data for the file. This is a bureaucratic compliance issue. It's not really an issue, what's happened to these children. So there is extreme coercion of extracting information from the children, whether about their own traumas, which they have to uh, expose and address, or it's about family and home country, and family and home countries' relationships to organized crime and so forth and political activity, or family here. This is what the children are subjected to over the course of, of many months of detention. In parallel, while they're inside, the children are given what are termed euphemistically services. And that is one of the services is educational programming or schooling. Um, the children are coerced into taking six hours of school every day. Um, and Ramona has a really interesting description of what kind of education this is. Is this education um, that they're receiving in any way validating of their knowledges already, their cultural knowledges, their knowledges of life and life skills that they already have as, as like the survivors that they are? Um, what, is the, what, is the, what are the paradigms of education that they're exposed to? And one of the cruelest uh, ones, in my view, was the sort of requirement that they cheerfully participate, you know, because participatory education is like better because you're not just told stuff because we're progressive, right? Sort of the liberal idea that you get the child actively involved in their own education, right? Um, so cheerfulness and playing and play-based learning are really important in this situation. And there's many other kind of services that the children receive, including dental services if you're in there for long enough, or if you're an older teen, you will have forensic dental testing performed on you without any consent or without being told that that's what's going on. All of the health services that are being received are done, or health procedures done with no consent whatsoever. So even though the FR guy is on the phone with family, with mom or dad or adult sibling, um, and has direct contact with these folks, either in home country or here, they do not ask for consent for the health procedures that are performed on the children, for the kinds of vaccinations or tests that are performed on the children. And of course, they don't ask the children for consent either. So there's a tremendous sort of list of uh, non-consenting, coercive kind of interactions that happen here that are labeled as services by the social service organizations uh, running them. If a file is completed on the child, it then goes to a kind of compliance review. And compliance review for the Heartland Alliance in Chicago is done by one of the largest private military contractors in the world called GDIC, General Dynamics IT, uh, the, their IT division. That's the person who goes into the detention centers to do compliance review on the files. The ICE agent, who's the field agent in charge of them, also goes repeatedly into the detention center to do compliance review on all the children. And so if and when their placement back with family or another placement is approved, the family is then called and said, OK, you can have your kid back, but you have to pay the airfare uh, for your child and an adult who is an escort. The price ranges are between $750 and $1,500 for 
a child and an escort, which the family have to pay in cash before they can receive their kid. So if you're in Texas and your kid gets taken there and brought to Chicago, Chicago's a huge hub for these centers, you then have to pay the $1,500 for the kid to be flown back to Texas. And when your child comes home, they're, they're released, they're considered released, and there's like a whole range of post-release services. What that means is that your child continues to be under detention, uh, uh, deportation proceedings. They have follow-up court dates. That notice to appear is still valid, right? According to congressional hearings, uh, roughly 50% of the families whose children are in the situation abscond from their follow-up court hearings and actually try to kind of disappear a little bit. <laughs> sort of they don't want the follow-up services. The follow-up services are these three-month kind of interval calls checking on the whereabouts of the family and the children. And if you remember that where are the children craze, the children are lost. We don't know what happened to 3,000 children who were released from detention, right? Sort of we can sort of walk you through some of the congressional records that show the extent to which these were simply places where folks didn't pick up the phone, right? The follow-up calls were not returned. So from our point of view, this is one of the many ways that immigrant communities are resisting, is that they're, they're, trying, they're, they're trying to fight back against the situation they're in, which is that now the government has their biometrics and their inf information on themselves and their entire families. Right? So actually disappearing and sort of withdrawing oneself from that is a really important and critical move. Before I wrap up, I wanted to say that um, it's one of the things that workers... Uh, ex-volunteers uh, and ex-volunteers know and they say repeatedly is that children are resisting on the inside on a continuous basis. Uh, on an almost daily basis in the largest center in Chicago, which houses 250 children, um, children refuse to eat until they get some kind of ability to call a parent. Uh, children refuse to get out of bed. They refuse to go out to playtime. They refuse to study what they're supposed to study. Uh, there was some kind of a, a, a big hoo-ha around how it was Thanksgiving, and there was a child who refused to color in the turkey, you know, because you have to be happy and cheerful and color in Turkey Day. The, the children have to participate and have to be cheerful and have to play. And if they don't want to go out for playtime, that marks them up for one-to-one um, -one monitoring. And, uh, and it, it's, there's, they're issued what's called a special incidence report. So this person becomes a behavioral problem and a potential kind of um, further problem down the road. So special incidence reports and one-to-one -one surveillance can be triggered by children refusing to play, refusing to stop crying, or refusing to eat. A special incidence report can cascade very, very quickly. Of course, there's children who hurt themselves. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things that happen. Children are medicated, psychotropic medications with no consent, and so forth. The children who are considered flight risks, or who try to escape and fail, or the children who don't comply or have a history of non-complying, then are taken for review for transfer into the more staff-secure facilities. And the staff-secure facilities are really set aside for su suspected gang members. And the uh, staff secure facilities are also under different kind of memorandum of agreement protocols with uh, sort of the gang task forces of different police jurisdictions in the town that the kids are being held, but also in the jurisdictions where family is. And uh, some of these children will never be released because they suspect a gang involvement. Some of these children will be just summarily deported because of that. But others will have that level of surveillance follow them post-release, right? They'll have the kind of gang task forces have already registered them. It, for us, it's really important to also mention that these are very prominent, well-established and politically embedded social service agencies that operate these shelters, so-called shelters. They operate these shelters and they normalize them and they normalize the discourse that this is shelter and care and this is done for the children's benefit. 
In Chicago, it's Heartland Alliance. Their legal arm is NIJC. Anybody doing immigrant rights work uh, champions NIJC because they're just so awesome in every way. NIJC, National Immigrant Justice Center, is a branch of Heartland Alliance. They're the ones who defend Heartland against uh, kids who litigate against them. And they're also the ones who say we provide services to children in shelters. And we've been pushing really hard against NIJC to force them to acknowledge that these are children who are prisoners in detention. And also the Catholic Archdiocese. So they're the big operators in our market. We need to understand that the stronghold that these Heartland Alliance has in our community. Last year, there was this this great march that everybody that was any sort of activist was going to go to. And it was sponsored by Heartland Alliance. This year, it was NIJC that sponsored one of the main sponsors of these Keep Families Together, Keep March. Families Together March. And it was very regulated. You had to stay within boundaries. You had to, there was no autonomy. Lucky enough, there were people that entered the march, and they had um, a, separate, a separate division go and hang out in front of the ICE downtown also. You know, so we have to really understand that autonomy is at the basis of all of our work. And so what we try to do also is to encourage people to seek their own autonomy and also to support that. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.